I think we were the most interested the entire time in who was the most handsome. Welcome to Foibles, where my mom and I record conversations we have anyway. I'm Zoe. I'm Zoe's mom. Oh yeah, that's right. I have a name. It's Frida. (laughs) Hello, beloved listeners. We are back with Foibles. Welcome. Today we're going to do maybe a one-parter. Well, we hope it'll be one part, but you know, we start gabbing and it goes on and on and on with just gems, gems, (laughs) endless gems, but yes. So this time, what we thought would be really fun is to watch all the versions of A Star is Born and then compare and contrast them for you and tell you which ones are the best. It'd be interesting because, you know, the new movie of A Star is Born just came out, so it kind of marries our old Hollywood interest with something that's current. Particularly myself. I mean, Zoe definitely has that interest, right? Yeah, but but I'm like hanging on your coattails. (laughs) On that particular issue. Also, I had seen two versions of A Star is Born before uh, this new one came out, and everyone was giving the new one such praise and high marks and so forth. I was very much looking forward to it, of course, but it also brought back to my memory having seen these other films when I was in my 20s and hadn't seen them since, but they both made a, a real mark on my memory for various reasons, which we, of course, will get into. I guess where we want to start is I'll, I'll just give you a little bit of background on my viewing and then Zoe will do that and we'll, we'll talk about some of the themes and what we came up with as being really kind of an intricate, complicated gender dynamic and also social dynamic in the film that, you know, at first you're just going, oh, this is just a piece of entertainment. And, and it is. Right. And a light one at that because of the trope it embodies. But Right. But yet I found that when I really thought about it and chewed on it for a bit that it was like, wait a minute. Why is this impacting me in the way it is? Because really, with my second wave feminism, I, you know, I was a young girl, very young girl at the time of second wave feminism, and I adopted a lot of those attitudes. I'm like, why is this moving me so deeply when I really should be poo-pooing it? Yeah. Because it's not feminist. And so seeing that it's way more complicated than that, and, and seeing how much it does actually speak to my feminism, and at the same time speak to my romanticism. And I really love that. That's a great introduction. And so I saw the 1937 version with Janet Gaynor and Frederick March, probably back in my 20s when I used to go to a repertory theater in Cleveland, which I may have mentioned many times. And I saw it, so I saw it on the big screen, and it's a big, beautiful, technicolor, widescreen version of A Star is Born. And it impacted me greatly. I'll never forget the final scene and the final line, which we will talk about where Janet Gaynor comes uh, forward and speaks into a microphone. I never forgotten that. I've always really remembered it fondly, but not in great detail. And then later, not much later, a few years later, I probably saw the 1954 version with Judy Garland and James Mason. And that also stuck very greatly in my memory primarily because of Judy Garland, who I do adore, and who is really, oddly, even though she was personally sliding downhill very fast toward her end, was really 
probably at the peak of her powers as a, as a great performer. And so that was very interesting to me. So that stuck in my mind. And then I hadn't seen anything, hadn't heard about it, hadn't thought about it until last year when... What about the 76 version? You saw that one too. Never saw it. Oh. Yeah, it was the first time I'd oh, seen it. Oh, I didn't it. realize that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I had heard a great deal about the version in 1976 with Barbara Streisand and Chris Christopherson, and I had not seen it. In 76, I was 18, and I hadn't gone to the film. I heard that it stunk, so I didn't go. It was a huge... Oh, back in the days before internet, for something to be so visible on somebody's radar, it got a lot of press because that would be newspapers, uh, magazines, word of mouth, <laughs> word of mouth, uh, radio uh, on TV. You know, that would be it. I mean, there was no that there wasn't this high speed dissemination of opinion and and information that I heard how how much conflict there was hmm. in this film. And then when the reviews came out, it, it was actually a very successful film. I, I was surprised to see that because it got such a negative uh, critical reception. But I hadn't, I hadn't seen it. And then, but when the, 19, the 2018 version came out and got such huge positive reviews, I was really surprised how strong the reviews were. I thought, well, you know, it might be interesting. And I, I know I want to see this film. Uh, with Lady Gaga and Bradley Cooper, but uh, I asked you, uh, to Zoe, do you want to like watch them all and do this for our podcast? And we thought it would be a really good idea. Turns out it was. We have we've had some lively discussions behind the scenes since watching them, especially while you know hanging around the bathroom and brushing our teeth. Yeah, just <laughs> yelling through our toothbrushes <laughs> about the movie. Hey, I can't hear you. Oh, okay, I'll come in your room. Okay, now, well, what did you think about this? So yeah, it has it has really been exactly what this podcast is supposed to be, which is about Zoe and my conversations. And we want to include you in that. So like we said, please email us at foiblespodcast at gmail.com if you you know you want to say anything about it or... Or leave uh, a comment and yeah, a review. Agree, agree. Yeah, please give us a five-star review. We love that. But okay, so basically you had seen... The most recent one before I did or before any of the others. I saw only the 2018 version while I was on a flight in April. And um, the I, th- I had headphones, but, you know, I wasn't listening to it very loudly. And it was on this tiny airplane screen. And, <laughs> you know, I, I looked at it and I was immediately like, even though I didn't know it had such a long history of being remade, I looked at it, read it and was like, oh, this is the, the most classic sort of like rom-com. Of course, it's like the candy of movies. Sure, I'll watch it. And... I I did enjoy watching it, and there were things about it that I thought were good, but I got a chance to think critically about it this time. And it was a little bit different point of view, it seemed like. Yeah. Also, so what we did for this, uh, our methodology, if you will, was that we decided to watch all the movies in order and discovered, and I didn't know this, even though several articles did point this out when they reviewed the 2018 version, is that there was really a precursor, a very early version of... The uh, A Star is Born. It was called What Price Hollywood? <laughs> and that version was in 1932, and it was kind of a proto A Star is Born. It was it's got a ton of the same elements, but it doesn't end the same. Right, right. So well, we'll talk about each film a little bit and give you some history and insight. Yeah, you know, we're going to talk very seriously about the tropes, which we will outline for you. And then at the end, we'll tell you the best and worst and what we recommend for you to watch. Which, of course, when I listen to a podcast, that's the part I'm waiting for. I want. <laughs> I just want to know what I can write down in my precious red notebook of movies to be watched. <laughs> right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's. Uh... So it's the, filled. All the pages are just triple stacked. I know. I know. I've got two now. <laughs> yeah, it's amazing. <laughs> but uh, 
Yeah, also, hey, that's the other thing we'd love is recommendations, film recommendations from our listeners to see if, you know, I always like to add something to my list. Anyway, trope-wise, this is the classic trope of the older man and the younger woman. The older man is on his way down. He's hit his peak, he's dissolute, and part of that trope, or a secondary trope, is the substance abuse trope, where he is a substance abuser, and he's on his downward slide after having hit the peak of Hollywood, or music, in the case, music fame. And he meets a young, fresh, exquisitely talented young woman who he falls in love with both personally and artistically. He mentors her. She ascends to the height of stardom as he slides. And we are, oh, by the way, we are going to spoil the end and every, any and every aspect of the film, all the films. So please be aware of that. And if you don't like that, watch them first and then come back. Also, in our show notes, we will list our recommendations of which ones we think are the best, worst, best to worst, shall we say. And you could go ahead and just cherry pick them, watch them, and then come back. Okay, I'm sure you've watched them all on your back now. So, as he descends into literal death, and there's a third trope, which is the sacrifice, the sacrificial being. Um, I don't want to say quite the Jesus complex, but it is kind of that way, except it's for one person instead of for all humanity, obviously. But it has that kind of Christian sacrificial point of view. And in this case, it's the older man sacrificing his very life for the ability of the young woman to thrive and to succeed. Okay? Do you feel up to giving a general brief of the plot elements of these sure thing that's my specialty go girl that i always digress into summary (laughs) Um, and then i have to go stop stop (laughs) that's enough don't go there (laughs) and so all of them i i won't explain the like uh what price hollywood and try and remember what the differences are but the basic structure of them all is a young woman is either moves to hollywood or is at the beginning of her musical or acting career and she encounters in some way this man who's already extremely famous and well-known and in the middle of his career. And, and, pre- then and pretty handsome. Handsome. Still. Yeah. Not too A dis- handsome, degenerate yeah. man. Um, and so you, generally, I think in all of them, she knows who he is. Like, he's that household of a name. Oh, um, absolutely. He's a big star. Big, big star. And so there's some kind of meet-cute in each movie. And then he um, gets a glimpse of her acting or her singing or whatever and ends up like kind of like following her and like latching onto her because he sees something special and he's like I'd really like to date you and you're a great artist Um, and I see that and I see you and so he brings her into the studio what have you on stage um, and gets her recognized she begins her career then they get married then he has a fall from grace and generally goes to rehab and they have a struggling this sort of like struggling but loving marriage and then comes the point where he realizes that she's either going to give up her career for him because he can't uh, like escape the group function and escape the gravity of his substance abuse. And so then he commits suicide in one way or the other. 
So that we'll, we'll also be talking about so suicide you, and mental health and substance abuse trigger warnings. Right. Good Good point. Thanks yeah. for that. Uh, so basically, he's setting her free. Mm-hmm. He's mentored her up through. She has gone off on her own and become an individuated artist. Mm-hmm. And now he sees that the only way for her to be able to continue and not be dragged down into almost sort of standard domesticity mm-hmm. by his substance abuse and his need for somebody to take care of him and nurse him and watch him and knowing that he will never, ever, ever not be an abuser, that he's not going to go to AA and be a success story, He was he, that he's too far gone. Much like Errol Flynn, if you listen to our <laughs> previous uh, series on Errol Flynn talking about that kind of issue, that he's never going to be healed. He decides that he should exit stage right so that she can be free to be the artist and the woman that she should be. So there, there's something complicated there going on. There's like definitely a, probably a conversation that a lot of people are having around the 2018 movie around um, the symbolic nature of his suicide and just sort of what real life mental health is and what like suicide is in a... In, a in reality. Reality, yeah. Yeah, the horror and, and sorrow and pain and tragedy of, of a real suicide versus an artistic literary suicide which plays a role in the in the sort of archetypal trajectory of the story of death and rebirth right and, exactly yeah. so it's, and so that his 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 suicide as a human being versus his suicide as a character in this story yes thank yeah. you so yeah they're they're basically interlocking what we call tropes or and when we say trope we mean like a classic story element that transcends time back a long, long way. And so there, there is this, if you go back to ancient Greece, there's the Pygmalion story about the man who creates this beautiful statue, brings the statue to life, and creates this, this real woman, or tries to create this real woman. And so that Pygmalion myth is, again, it plays out through the ages. So we're here with this, and it's always a man, <laughs> the man, finding the young woman and molding her. But I will give the credit to these films in that... The Star is Born is really in conversation with that. It's it really not is. just a perpetuation of My Fair Lady or something like that. Right, because he's not molding her. He's advising her. Mm-hmm. He's he's using his, his connections to force the gatekeepers to let her through so that she can show who she is. Which is, you know, that's networking. That's nepotism. That's how it works, actually, is you know somebody and they help get you in the door. But it's still up to the woman to have the talent, to have the ability, and have the guts to get out there and do it. But he's pushing her. He's encouraging slash pushing her to get out there and fulfill that dream. And I think that that is, is, like you say, is in conversation because he's not creating her. Right, and there's a subtextual layer to all of them, but most, especially the 2018 one artistically, um, of the tension between kind of what he wants her to be and what she wants to be and her finding, maintaining, I guess, independent, artistic independence. Right, well, I think that they make the issue of independence more connected to her artistry than to her person, Whereas in the, the earlier ones where it's acting, which is in the Hollywood system acting, and then in the uh, 1976 version where it's music with Barbara Streisand, basically they're doing exactly what 
he wants her to do, the kind of acting, the kind of music. She's not going off and doing all these different artistic things that go against his values. But her career has established itself as an individuated entity from him. And then that draws her into being an individuated in person from him Mm -hmm. in the eyes of the world, which seems to be the worst part. It doesn't seem to be so bad that the men in these movies don't seem to have a problem with the woman being her own person, Mm -hmm. except in the last one, actually. Yeah. (laughs) Oddly oddly retrograde there in in terms of you wouldn't think that would be an issue, of being her own person. But really, because these women are, are not abandoning him, but basically he has a problem with the world seeing her as an individuated artist who is great now and is current and relevant and seeing him as being irrelevant and being an appendage to her. Auxiliary, yeah. Which is what women have always been to men. But the men in these movies can't handle that because as society defines them and has taught them, you are not a man if you are in this more supportive and also subservient because of their they're weak in terms of their substance abuse makes them needy and all that kind of right. thing. So um, if you wanted to, you can make it an emasculation and suicide story too. Yeah, it is. It is totally an emasculation story. Now, one of the things that critics and media and everything, and even the filmmakers themselves, they talk about it as, at least the particular ones in the beginning, an indictment of Hollywood. And then, of course, with the music industry, it's really an indictment of the industry, whatever industry they're in, and making an indictment of fame and an indictment of uh, how this industry chews people up and spits them out. And I think that that is a complete, that is an incorrect interpretation. These movies do not do that at all. The men are chewed up and spat out by the system because they're addicts Mm -hmm. and they become actually non-functional. They become expensive without creating the the revenue. This is business after all. The woman character, she's young, fresh, up and coming. She's functional. She's present. She shows up on time. She's ready. She's able to perform and she brings in the revenue and therefore she reaps that benefit. And the men, even though they've been very, very successful in the past, Basically, what it's saying is, well, that's not going to be enough for you to come in and totally scuttle our production and double our budget because you are so drunk, a.k.a. Errol Flynn, R.I.P., right. and get away with it. Her nasty boy up in heaven. I know. <laughs> or somewhere. <laughs> okay, up in heaven, I'm yeah. sure. Everybody, Everyone goes to heaven, right? Anyway, I won't go into that. <laughs> that sin's being washed clean is in my belief. But okay, so... So basically, we have this attitude that this is about indicting the industry, and in fact, it doesn't at all. I think people like to think that, but really, we're all drawn to it because it's a celebration of the kind of fame and celebrity we're all intrigued by, and that's what makes it successful. I agree. I agree (laughs) totally. And it does not uh, denigrate or put down the industry, although maybe the industry deserves it. I don't know. But I say it does. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) But but then so does every business. I don't. It's it's the rare business, unlike the like the place where. you work, which is a small family business where they are kind and everybody's an individual and it's all supportive (laughs) and all of that. I mean, that's the anomaly. Right. You know, and the more money connected to the business, the more vicious, the more competitive, 
uh, it's going to be. And I, Hollywood is, I'm sure, vicious and competitive. And so is the music business, according to Billy Joel, for sure. <laughs> um, but those things are that way because the stakes are higher in terms of money. So I think that we'll be able to get it more into these tropes as we talk about each movie. Do let's, you, yeah, you let's... So? I, should, we, should we crack it open? Let's do it. Let's crack open the, the beginning of this. So this all started, this particular run of movies, started in 1932 with what, uh, as we said, What Price Hollywood? Question mark, which I love. <laughs> and this movie was, it's a sound movie because we're in the sound period, but it's an early sound film. And it takes place around the Hollywood studio. We don't get to the music industry until we get to 76 with Barbara Streisand. And it stars a woman named Constance Bennett. And of course, those of you who are movie aficionados will know her. She's not somebody that I really knew that well. She was a top, top, top star. Her name is the only name above the title in this film. Hmm. And I had I don't know that I had ever seen her before, or maybe I did, but didn't remember. And with a name like Constance, I'm like, okay, she must talk with the round tones of a stage actress. But Constance Bennett is like a little blonde Betty Boop. She's so American of that period. She's so um, hep. She's cute. She's got a, a little bit of flapperish intonation in her, but she's a working class kind of flapper. She plays a working class young woman who's waiting tables, trying to make her big break into film, just like so many thousands of young women were. She's blonde and she's got bobbed hair and a round face. So if you've ever seen Betty Boop, just think of her as blonde and that's kind of like Constance Bennett. She's really adorable. <laughs> she's adorable with big eyes and I love her line delivery. She's snappy. She's clear. She's She reminds me a lot of maybe a more, a little bit more flippant Jean Arthur yeah. of the time. Uh, she's just adorable. So she plays Mary Evans, who's the young, the ingenue, the one who wants to break in. And then one of the other leads is, the act- actor's name is Lowell Sherman. Never heard of him before. I never, I don't think I've ever seen him in anything. And he plays a guy named Max Carey, who is a dissolute, drunken, louche uh, film director who's a man about town with his beautiful, you know, he's wearing the top hats and he's, and he's generous and he's kind and he's funny and he's drunk, right? And then the final of this triumvirate is Neil Hamilton who plays Lonnie Borden. And he's actually the love interest. He's a rich playboy guy, uh, very much a traditional man who wants a traditional kind of wife, but he's very rich and he's very self-assertive and he falls in love with Mary and sweeps her off her feet and marries her. So she's married to this rich guy. And There's then, a lot to unpack in how they form their relationship. Yeah, yeah if you go, <laughs> go for it if you want to. And then one thing I do really want to bring out here, uh, one of the things, is that Neil Hamilton, those of you who know the Batman series from 1960s TV, which I watched when I was a child, will remember him as Commissioner Gordon. Except here, like about 30 years earlier, he's got... His jowls are tight. His, you know, his figure is slim. He's pretty good looking, but he he really doesn't have the commanding persona that would make him really into a, a leading man romantic star. But he he does okay here. He does fine. And so those are the three people that we're looking at here. Now in later films, what happens is the Max Carey and the Lonnie Borden characters, the dissolute older man director and the lover become one character. They're brought together as one. So that's, that'll be the, one of the differences between this early version 
and the later versions. So, and then the, another very important, uh, very salient point here is that the director is George Cukor. I adore George Cukor. He is a great, great director. And he was known as uh, a woman's director. But really, I think it was just because he honored and respected his his women <laughs> actors yeah. as much as he did the men. And so like, whoa, <laughs> deal with that, man. <laughs> and so men, male uh, actors often didn't want to work with him because they, they thought he would skew the movie in favor of the women. Interesting. Mostly because the movies were always skewed in favor of the men. And now suddenly there was going to be... Oh, there's equitable screen time in this script? <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. And so that I, that's that's just my point of view. So Kukor um, does directed and he does a very fine job but it is early days in this sound yeah. quality and so you, you know you can kind of see that I mean it's it's a really entertaining movie I enjoyed it very much I was surprised at how much I enjoyed it but it wasn't you know you can see with just within five years how much the quality of the sound and the visuals and the camera work improves and that kind of thing so I enjoyed this film a great deal but it really is just a triangle between Lonnie who uh symbolizes the housewifely standard marital domestic setup where the woman you know especially a rich woman doesn't work she's always available to her husband whenever he wants her as a companion or whatever to take care of children and then there's the um, Lowell Sherman who has some great banter with Constance Bennett really really cute dialogue and so forth she and he work together as equals and he helps her get into the film you actually see her practicing right to to be better because she kind of stinks at her first uh, yeah that's pretty fun she so um i love the scene where they meet in the restaurant there's a lot of like snappy dialogue and very much silly silliness it's it's a good comedy it's a solid comedy even though it has that element of uh his suicide at the end yeah you see it shows you a bit of behind the scenes when she's practicing. And so you see her like working on her craft a bit, which I like. I appreciate. Yes. She doesn't just show up. And can do it. And so, yeah, I really like that. So you can kind of see, just even the, there's not much time in the film to do it. But you can see, okay, you can see when she stinks. And then you can see when she's good. So they have established that she has talent. That she has presence and she has talent. So we get to see that. And then know it's true. Rather than just being told. Right. Oh, she's great. She's great. We actually see it. And then... That's kind of the hard part about some the other, the next two A Star is Born films because they're actresses. Uh, you don't get to see... Well, I mean, I guess you get to see Judy Garland, right? Do... A lot. A lot. Yeah. A lot of routines, a lot of songs, but... Um, but yeah, it's hard. It's more subjective and it's more less, more indefinable and harder to show like an actor being acting as an amazing actor right well so. they, but they did they did in this movie so mm-hmm. they could have done it in the other one they just chose not to yeah I mean, probably to save time would be my my guess but anyway they do show it and she you you get a really a lot of her connections with other people in the film how she makes friendships how she works with the crew the camaraderie and she does say to to the neil hamilton lonnie borden character you know Unlike your world, this world where they're warm and caring and friendly. So this is no way an indictment of, even though it says what price Hollywood. Right. <laughs> she she absolutely 
Um, yeah, she has to work hard. Yeah, she has to uh, pretend to be all happy and cheerful and everything's fine when she does interviews, all that kind of stuff. But but essentially, she she's treated as an artist and an equal. She has input into the work she's doing. She has her own income. She you know she is a modern woman. And here's this man trying Lonnie Borden trying to pull her into this more traditional old style, okay, you're going to just be my wife. You're going to be domesticated. And this is where they end up having the conflict. And what I love about this film, it's not terrifically complex like some of the other ones become. What I love about the film is that she says, no way. And they end up getting divorced. And now this is a pre-code film and pre-code Hollywood. Mm-hmm. You can have divorce. You can have a lot of things in the film, references to sex, etc., that you couldn't have had later. So one of the reasons that they would never have been able to take this storyline forward was because of the Hayes Code, so-called popularly, that uh, wouldn't have allowed this to happen. Or if they did, she would have had to die in the end. Right. Uh, some kind of retribution would have Or go to prison, one right. or the other, right? Right. So in this one, she doesn't. She's fine. And the man finally comes back to her and says, I was wrong. I miss you. I want to be with you. And please take me back on your terms. So that is really breaking away from the the standard mode of operation where the woman always truckles to the man and always subsumes herself in the man's ideals and ambitions. And of course, one of the things that's politically and socially relevant to this film, What Price Hollywood, is that Lonnie doesn't work. He doesn't have a job. He's just rich. He plays polo. He travels. He just lives a good life. Whereas Mary Evans, she is working hard. I mean, she really, you can tell she spends, they they, they give the idea of how many hours a day she spends working her job. And yes, it's glamorous. Yes, she's wearing beautiful gowns. Yes, she's famous. But she works hard hard for what she has and she is not willing to stop her work for this life of luxury the beginning of the whole line of movies that are struggling with this idea of like yeah what what does it mean to be in one a great artist but two really invested in your craft as a woman and how do you do that when you're trying to escape these traditional roles and it's not i think escaping traditional roles is well that's that's the tip of the iceberg I think the issue is, does a woman's work, where does that rank? If you did, if you did a, an analogy to Maslow's hierarchy of needs, where does that rank? Because in most Hollywood movies and, and in what society wants us to go is the peak, the top, the most fundamental need that you have to have met like air is a man, mm-hmm. is a husband. And of course, that was true because women couldn't have credit for a lot, long time. Women couldn't buy houses. Women couldn't, you know, hardly get many jobs, you know, that were professional or high paying, except for maybe being an actress. So the only way you could thrive financially was through a man. I mean, that's just how it was. Yeah. And so the way the social structure was set up, it did force you. But in this film, she doesn't have to and she doesn't. And so how does her artistry, and this is a little bit different in What Price Hollywood, because the artistry is there, but really the important thing that she points out is the camaraderie, the family, the connection, her place. This is where she belongs. And how important is that versus the societally uh, imposed value of a husband when she doesn't really need him? 
I mean, she does love him, and, and when they can work it out, she's happy to take him back. Good point. Well, also, yeah, he kind of forces himself on her in this movie. and like, Well, I, so that's what men do. He's not a man if he doesn't do that, right? <laughs> he really doesn't. He <laughs> breaks into her apartment and bodily carries her to a dinner yeah. that he sets up for her. Like, there's, it's pretty... Rapey? Yeah, <laughs> frankly. And I think being pre-Hayes Code, actually, there is, like, an undercurrent of kind of dark sexuality in yeah. that scene. He's, like, forcing, force-feeding her and stuff. Like, so, yeah, if yeah, people today will watch that and be like, ooh, yikes, but... Yeah, I agree with you. I agree. <laughs> the only thing that makes it okay is that the result is she really wanted she it. She really wanted it, and she <laughs> likes it. Yeah. Um, the, so, my favorite thing about this movie, actually, um, speaking of it being kind of non-traditional, is having those two characters separated, Max and Lonnie, um, having her lover separate from her um, like work inspiration partner, is that they get to have a really nice platonic relationship that's really strong and really important to both of them. And they always treat each other really well, um, and, she and Max. And it has the mentoring relationship mm-hmm. in it without the sexual, the sexual politics. Yeah. yeah, which I don't begrudge that in the other movies. Obviously, I'm interested in that, but it's kind of nice to see especially in a movie this early. Yeah. And, well, I think the the other thing is is that he, and this is set up in this film, so we really should talk about it, is that he is set up from the beginning as being irredeemable. He's, at this point in this film, he's still charming and funny, and but he gets into these pranks and these mix-ups and so forth that really are a problem for everybody else around him because he's still at the pinnacle enough that, that the studio and the people around him are cleaning up after him, basically enabling him mm-hmm. and taking care of his messes and making things right when he causes harm to somebody else's car or whatever. But he is char- he really is charming. And this is the one film where I really understand why they would do it. He's so so funny and so charming and so mm-hmm. has such a bright outlook in, a, in an odd way, in his nihilistic way. He's really sweet and he's really attentive to like the random extras in the scene who he's handing flowers to, you know, it's, it's right, sweet. Right, right, right. They really do set that up well. And then he ends up, uh, you know, helping her. And it's really, there's this great scene where it shows her, it indicates her fame and that there's like these big, uh, like firework lights coming at you out of the screen and there's this lit up figure and it's like ah and it just builds and builds and builds it's not actually anything happening it's just this this scene of fireworks to indicate to you okay she's a star now she's super famous <laughs> yeah, she's super famous and then no one wants to work with him and then he ends up skidding down the hill and ultimately um in this film he he's staying in her house and he ends up shooting himself. And with the gun he finds in the drawer. With the yeah. gun he finds in the drawer, and then he's gone. And he's, you know, out of his despair. He knows he's never going to recover. And he's lost all respect. And he's lost face and his reputation and place in the world for, through his, completely through his own fault. It isn't like something where it would be more poignant to me, where it's someone who is great and they've just gotten older. And people just don't have time for them anymore. And there are other films like that. But this one, every single one of these men does it to himself. Mm-hmm. He doesn't. He, it isn't because, oh, now he's not as good as he used to be or as handsome or as young, and so we don't want him anymore. And that's very interesting. So this film was very interesting, particularly interesting to me, because as I was watching this, I went, I'm sorry, I should say, then after he shoots himself, the scandal attaches to her, that he shot himself in her house, 
all of a sudden she her films are being shunned and uh, people won't go to see them and the and the studio wants to cut her contract and her career is being ruined by this situation and what struck me and I thought oh is this a reference to the Jean Harlow scandal because in in the same year 1932 Jean Harlow's second husband so sorry Jean Harlow is an actress oh, and we if you've listened to all of our episodes you probably will have listened to a two-parter about her exclusively already but right. she was an actress from the time and she was the blonde sexy hot Huge, hit, one of the top girl. stars in the world. I'm sorry. Thank you for doing that because yeah. I just assume, of course everyone knows who Jean Harlow <laughs> is. Jean Harlow, she's like relevant today. Thank you. Uh, so as Zoe said, that's exactly right. And, and what happened was her second second husband, that's right, her second husband, Paul Byrne, who was a producer at the studio, and they'd only been married three months, shot himself in their home three months after they were married. And and. Her career was tenuous for a Tenuous, minute. very, very threatened uh, for a long time. And they didn't, didn't think that her career was going to make it. And that happened that, due to that scandal. I thought, oh, what a reference. And then I looked up the dates, and I found out that the Jean Harlow um, tragedy happened two to three months after this film was released. Wow. So that was very weird. That is weird. And especially since, like you pointed out, Jean Harlow was blonde. She was a platinum blonde bombshell. Constant Bennett was blonde in this film. Mm-hmm. And so it just seemed like the... the you know, Two on the nose. That's an incredible coincidence. It really, really is. Isn't it weird? Yeah. And in fact, Lowell Sherman does not look unlike Paul Byrne, <laughs> who was Jean Harlow's husband. And, he, and, and, and Byrne was older than Harlow, too. And that's another interesting connection is that Harlow very young she died when she was 27 she was very young so all of her husbands were around 20 years older than she was except for her very first husband but her last two husbands and her last boyfriend were all about 20 years older than her so we've got the a star is born trope now a lot of those men didn't create her fame although Paul Byrne did help her a lot right they didn't create her fame but she turned to them to educate her and she liked nothing better than to sit at their feet with a book or listening to them explaining things to her <laughs> that's what she said and so there really was this trope of the the Pygmalion trope going on in her life as well in real life not that this film was based on her life or anything like that but that was very interesting parallels yeah, some people said that the the film What Price Hollywood and The Star is Born was based on Barbara Stanwyck and her, I forget what her husband's name was, but he was a, I think a vaudevillian, and his career was going downhill as her career was going up. I don't know. Then they, they named five other people, too, so yeah, I don't sure. know how that is. <laughs> so anyway, this film is very entertaining. Cukor mm-hmm. uh, has such a light hand, even with the suicide. He makes it dramatic, but not heavy. And I, I do recommend this one. I think people would like it, and I'm glad that I got a chance to watch it. But shall we move on to the Me next too. one? Yeah, let's ready? do it. Okay, so this is fun. Now, the film that made in 1932, directed by uh, George Cukor, was made by a studio called RKO Pathé. And, and if you've ever <laughs> seen this, you've, if you've ever watched old movies, in the beginning part where they have like the, the symbol and the logo for the, the company, they have a live rooster crowing. 
And that's the symbol, you know, not the lion roaring, but the rooster crowing. So that's Archaeopathe. And it was produced by a guy named David Selznick. And, oh, you know what? We don't want to forget to mention there's like a tagline in all these films. And in this one... The, in what price Hollywood? Yes, in what yeah. price Hollywood. Do you want to read it? Where uh, the director, the older director, the woman is leaving. And he, the older man calls her back. And says, and she says, what? What is it? And he says, mind if I take one more look? And it gives us a chance to take one more look at her face beautifully lit in this glowing, in, in her innocence or her before she becomes a star. Yeah, so that's the, that's a through line of all the movies. Mind if I take one more look or some variation on that. And it's it's become a meme since the 2018 or when the 2018 movie came really? out. Yeah. That, that screen cap with the mind. If I take one more look, people are making all kinds of jokes with it. It's, per, it's a very famous line at this point. Well, mind if I take one more look is also important because, um, in the films, what happens is early on when he first meets her and she's leaving after their first meeting and he's taken with her beauty and style. And this is in the later movies. Actually, I don't think they do this in what price Hollywood, but then in the last scene, before he kills himself, she's walking away to go in to make dinner or whatever, or make a phone call, whatever it is she does. And he calls her back and says, I just wanted to take one more look. And then she smiles at him and she walks away and then he goes off and kills himself. So they use that tagline as a bookending of their relationship of the innocent to the, the end. So anyway, this, it starts here in this film. And then what happened was in 1937, so this is only five years later, David Selznick, he moves to MGM and he really wants to do this new film called Star is Born. And A Star is Born was written by people like Dorothy Parker and Alan Campbell. Now, if you don't know, Dorothy Parker is really one of the wittiest writers of the 20th century. Hmm. She wrote films, she wrote essays. I don't really care for her essays. I don't think they're that great. But she had all of the these great lines, and she was uh, just a, a witty, witty woman. Let's see, what is, um, she came up with things like, and of course she wasn't terribly feminist, but <laughs> she came up with things like, um, men don't make passes with girls that wear glasses. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Stuff like that. <laughs> Which is a classic. Everybody knows that one, so I, mean, I hate to leave it in, but I think we better. So Dorothy Parker, um, I, I want to digress on her a little bit because she is a monumental figure of the 20th century literary scene in America. More than really a lot of us know, but uh, there's foundations with her. She was a civil rights activist. She was a Hollywood screenwriter. She was a poet. She's one of the founders of the famous Algonquin Table. Hmm. Do you know about the Algonquin Table? Sounds familiar. There's a hotel in New York called Algonquin, and there is a table there where the wits and the famous playwrights and the writers of New York, which were preeminent in really the world, they would meet and they would trade quips and they would talk and drink. Drink. Mostly drink. Drink. And Dorothy was an alcoholic, and, and she she had a very sad life, but she was very she was such a a razor wit. She really, really was. But she never, she was one of those women, who I think, I think a lot like Barbara Streisand, who was quite a beautiful, strong, intelligent woman who never really felt that way about herself. She projected it. She, she, it's sort of like she tried to fake it till she made it, but she never internalized it, I don't think. And she never really felt loved in her life. 
and so forth. But Wait, Barbara Streisand or Dorothy Parker? Both, okay. in my opinion. <laughs> uh, although maybe Barbara has, I mean, she seems to have had a really great solid marriage. So um, I think my opinion would be she's probably overcome that. But, but Dorothy Parker never did. But I did want to uh, say that I thought this was kind of fascinating, is that Dorothy Parker's uncle died on the Titanic. Oh, wow. He wasn't anybody famous, but that was that's pretty amazing. And she wrote, would often write book reviews for the uh, New Yorker, which has you know, been around for quite a while now. And <laughs> she hated, hated, hated Winnie the Pooh. Oh, and really? And House at Pooh Corner. What? She hated those books. Why? Her review was... And, and her, oh, I should say first, her uh, uh, signature on all her reviews was constant reader. Okay. Right? And she says, constant weeder flowed up. <laughs> wow. Yeah. She didn't like it very much. I love Winnie the Pooh. I Oh, I do too. I love Winnie. I think it's, I think it's just as sweet as can be. But one of the most, uh, beyond the little couplet that I recited earlier, one of her most famous, and I think sad yet funny, darkly darkly funny poems is called resume and it goes like this razors pain you rivers are damp acids stain you and drugs cause cramp guns aren't lawful nooses give gas smells awful you might as well live <laughs> which i think is hilarious Heard that one <laughs> and anybody who's had depressive incidents such as myself have had a lifelong depressed depressive dealing with depression that that says it all. <laughs> relevant to our topic today. Totally relevant to our topic today. So anyway, she said a couple of other things that I liked. She said um, heterosexuality is not normal. It's just common. <laughs> and uh, tell him I was fucking busy or vice versa. Things like that. She was raunchier than I expected. Oh, she definitely was. She definitely was. She didn't hold back there. So anyway, she was one of the writers uh, that was brought onto this new A Star is Born by David Oselznik, and uh, there were other writers working with her as well. I mean, these this had an amazing set of writers for this time. Alan Campbell, her husband, but also a, a writer in his own right, a guy named Bud Schulberg, who is, if you read any Hollywood, early Hollywood books, Bud Schulberg comes up all the time. Ben Hecht, who was a, a famous uh, and very successful New York playwright, he wrote a play called The Front Page, well, along with his partner, uh, called the front page. I don't know if you've ever seen that. It's it's brilliant. I think it's brilliant. It's very funny. And then William Wellman himself, who was also the director of this picture, uh, added to the screenplay. So what happened was when uh, David Oselznik came over and he wanted to, he got this script together and he wanted to produce this film. He asked George Kukor if he would direct it. <laughs> Kukor reads the script and he goes. That's too much like a film I just made five years ago, What Price Hollywood. And he didn't want to do it again. He didn't want to do the same film again. He didn't want to get pigeonholed. He didn't want to get stuck with this, so he turned it down. So they got another director, uh, William Wellman, who is another famous early director, really good director. In fact, I hate to say this, but perhaps a better director in terms of the camera work than mm. George Cukor, in my opinion. And he directed, actually, the very first film to uh, get an Academy Award for Best Picture, called oh. Wings in 1927. Oh, wow. So he was a director, like all the ones at this period, pretty much, who had started in silence and learned how to do silent film techniques and then moved into sound. And Wellman, I think, did it very effectively. If you look at this film, this A Star is Born from 1937, he very effectively transported 
beautiful techniques from the silent film, yet he used sound very effectively. Uh, but there are some beautiful shots. And the other thing that, that's so interesting about this is that they use Technicolor. So this is one of the very first films to, if not the first film, to use the Technicolor technique. And in fact, the cinematographer, a guy named W. Howard Green, actually got a special uh, Oscar for his cinematography for using Technicolor cinematography. So he huh. got an award for Technicolor cinematography. And it is beautiful. It's, I mean, the color is not realistic by any means. It's quite intense and bright and... Uh, uh, primary, yeah. Very primary and, and fluorescent, but very beautiful nonetheless. And I don't, I don't think it detracts at all, but it's, um, you know, so that's really an amazing, an amazing thing to, to bring this color in and bring this wide cinemascope and, and create this fantastic picture with the, the sound and the color and the widescreen and everything, only like 10 years, nine years since the the introduction of sound. And for a director to be able to implement all of those aspects, even though he himself was not the technical expertise for this, he was able to direct these people to work together to create this very harmonious uh, work. I think uh, Wellman deserves really a lot of praise for that. And... um, that's a good film, and it, it's when I watched it, I was like, "This is quintessentially what I would say encapsulates a Hollywood movie yeah. from the time." I would agree. I, I agree. It is very much so. In fact, it, in a good way. In a good way, because it's one of the ones that creates that template. Yeah, it's not a follower; it's a creator of that. So, in this film, basically, we have the star is Janet Gaynor. And Janet Gaynor, probably nobody knows who she is anymore, um, except maybe a couple people out there are cinephiliac listeners. And Janet Gaynor was the first actor to win a Best Actress Oscar. Uh, from, and she won it in 1927 for, basically back then they didn't do it for a film. I guess they just kind of said, well, you're the best actress this year, and you know these are the films you were in. So she was in a couple different films in 1927, and so she won the Best Actress the very first best actress. We had the best, uh, first best director and the first best actor, wow. actress in in the same film together. And uh, Janet Gaynor is plays a, a character. I love this. They decided to really make it very Hollywood and and really point out how glamorized everything is. So she's a young girl from the uh, middle of America, from the mid Midwest, and she goes to Hollywood. And her name is Esther Blodgett. Now. You're not getting less romantic than Esther Blodgett. Although Esther is kind of a nice name. But, it is. But Blodgett is kind of, kind of the, the sounds, it's not mellifluous, really. And so she gets, um, gets to Hollywood, and she wants to make a break in, and she's a waitress, just like Constance Bennett was in the other. And Constance Bennett did a few accents and a few um, imitations of famous stars at the time. And in this film, she gets a job uh, waiting at a party, and she goes up to ev- all these Hollywood people as different characters. She does Garbo. She does uh, Tallulah Bankhead. She does, you know, a couple of different really famous stars that, of course, I recognize immediately. Uh, you may or may not have recognized them. No. <laughs> yeah. So she does a few a, a few of those, and so that's supposed to be the comic relief. And it establishes that she's a versatile 
great actress and cute and has a great sense of humor and a, and a real and a real desire to to succeed in this and she knows a lot about the industry so all of that and at this party she meets the older man his name is norman Maine, which i think is a good name yeah i like it and he's played by an actor named frederick march and frederick march was a very a very well-known new york theatrical actor big he was very successful in the in new york theater he and his wife uh florence eldridge were a uh, pair it was very famous where couples like would be on stage together a lot like the alfred lunt and lynn fontan was another couple at the time so he and his wife he's the one who made it in hollywood she wasn't as good looking as he was i mean he was really a good looking man uh please look him up he had a really nice profile that kind of profile was very popular at the time with the straight nose and he had patrician looking as a statuesque he could have been a statesman or whatever he's very good looking in that particular way and he uh, plays uh, norman maine now what i think is very funny is that through this film they have this sort of joke about esther blodgett terrible name they're gonna have to change her name so they end up calling her vicky lester which is a very cute name and so she becomes vicky lester and that's that is a whole thing about maybe the, the glamour of Hollywood and how they make things uh, that they're not your real name. They make you into something else. Well, what I think is funny is that Frederick March's real name was Ernest Bickle. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, and he changed it to Frederick March. <laughs> no wonder. <laughs> yes. So, uh, so this is where we really start to see where the love interest and the um, substance abuser and the power broker are in one person, which is Norman Maine, and the young, uh, vibrant talent that comes into play is is Vicki Lester or Esther Blodgett. And it's interesting, I looked up the difference in ages, and these this holds pretty true. There's actually only nine years difference between them. Uh, Janet Gaynor, when she played this role, was 31, and Frederick March, who he does look older, is, is 40. Oh, okay. Yeah. That's kind of surprising, yeah. And he, I mean... He looks pretty good as an older Yeah, he's very man. handsome still. Like, he, you know, he doesn't look like some actors when you're like, oh boy, that's re- they've really aged. Yeah, a rough life, man. <laughs> like Errol Flynn, they're drinking too much or whatever. Right, he's not puffy or anything like that. He And he's... But I would have believed that the age difference was a lot greater. Yeah, yeah, I definitely would have thought so too. And I, I thought about the age difference, and that seems to me to be... Part of it is, of course, in our society... The man has to be older than the woman, and that shows his his ability, his prowess, and his his position, and that he can, you know, it doesn't have anything to do with like what a good person he is, but so he can attract beauty and youth, youth and beauty in a woman, and that's part of it. But you know, when you really think of it practically, oftentimes people reach their pinnacle like around forty ish in terms of power. And in terms of ability, so the ability to mentor another person, and to be at the point where you've gotten so high that you have some place to slide down from, usually you're you're going to be close to middle age or in middle age, and then somebody who hasn't made it for so long is likely to be a younger person, you know, somebody who's really trying to break in, and so it kind of makes sense that the age would be different. The only thing is, is that as I actually was listening to another podcast about A Star is Born and they made a good point, it's always that sort of patriarchal point of view, the older man and the younger woman. Now at this time it makes sense because an older woman would be very unlikely to have overt kind of power and influence like that. She might, but it would always be kind of covert or it would be through a man or it'd be in some roundabout way. 
Um, the same thing as if it were, say, someone of a, a non-white race. I mean, it's unlikely that they would be able to just be overtly powerful in society. It would always have to be in some roundabout way. And so it makes sense that it would have to be this way. But through every iteration, it's always this way. Yeah. I mean, it makes sense. It reflects not only what you see in so many of those movies, which is the older man and the younger woman, a la uh, Love in the Afternoon or whatever. S- Sabrina. Yeah. Just almost every, yeah. Yeah. And it's, and so it reflects that, which actually reflects the desires and lives of the powerful men that can make those movies. Right. That's their fantasy. Yeah. yeah. And probably their reality, a lot of them. But you made a good point that had they, you know, that I was saying, well, why can't the gender go the other way? And you made the point was, yeah, they have done it. And that's in Sunset Boulevard. Right. <laughs> it just goes very differently. Yeah, yeah. Where the woman is, is, is she's a harpy and, and going to suck this guy dry. And, you know, he's the young man servicing her. And so he's put down because of it. Whereas when it's the other way around, everyone is elevated by this whole thing. Right. So that's interesting. Well, we'll see if they make it again, if they actually are able to break out, because the new one doesn't break out at all. In fact, it becomes kind of retrograde and far. It actually is less um, progressive than some of these films. I guess we'll get to that, right? Mm-hmm. So anyway, that's the that's the, the setup. And she uh, hits the highest heights. We never see her act. This is one of... I think maybe we get a glimpse of a scene and yeah, it's just we do. kind of... You don't see anything. Whatever. Yeah. yeah. She just kind of looks at him and, a he, period. Yeah. and he says something to yes. her and that's it. Yeah. And it's so we don't really see her talent. So we just have to believe when everyone says how adorable and how wonderful and how this and that she is, that she is. But it doesn't attach to your heart that she is a great artist. And yeah. that's where this movie falls down. Because our investment in her continuing her career and in, and in the value of her art is is not visible to us. It's just told to us. And the only moment you really feel it is at the end. Um, right. But like that's the moment that you can feel it in this movie, and we'll talk more about that too. Right. So basically, and, and it's very simple. She gets more... Um, famous and 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 successful and he drinks more and more and he gets into all kinds of scrapes and he gets picked up by the police and she has to get him out of it and he goes to rehab and it's just kind of this long cycle of frederick march falling over chairs and uh, punching people and then and then he gets a dose of how much people hate him because he was such an ass when he was on the top and he was drinking and and everyone had to take his crap and clean up after him and he was careless of how other people felt and then he ends up coming back from rehab clean but he tells vicky at the very or esther at the very beginning of the film it's too late i'm irredeemable essentially and i'm never going to get better and he tells her that and watch out i'm no good for you he tells her all these things and yet yet he pursues her and she ends up determining that the only way to save him is to give up her career and spend 24-7 with him, taking care of him and helping him and loving him and loving him enough to save him and that that will save him. And he overhears her talk about this. You can see on the face uh, of the actor, and I think Frederick March does a good job of this, showing his, his pain and his remorse that he is going to take her life, essentially, in exchange for his own. And a lot of people said that, I've read that, oh, well, he realizes that she can't save him. And I'm going to take a different tack here. I'm going to say he realizes that she could save him. Hmm. If she gave her life for his, if she gave up her, her career and success and her recognition 
as an individual person through her art, she gives that up and becomes his wife and spends time with him all the time, basically filling his need, filling his maw endlessly because it's never going to be filled, just constantly feeding him, that he would stay off the drugs and that he would survive for however long he was going to in his ravaged body. And so he chose not to let her. He chose her life over his life. So, which gives his sacrifice, in my, I, my mind, more poignancy. Because what he does is then he determines that he's not going to let her do this. He takes off his robe, he's in his bathing trunks, and he walks into the ocean, and he just keeps walking into the ocean. And then the next thing we know, he's been found, drowned. So, and we know, of course, we know that he did that on purpose. And they never say for, they, 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 because of the code, they can't talk about suicide. So they never say he committed suicide or he did it on purpose. They imply it to us and we can infer that. It's very clear, yeah. And she misses him and, she's in, and she is in absolute agony over his loss because she truly does love him. And she's going to give up her life. And go away and go back she to her decides, own town. Yeah, to give up her career. And there's one character that we haven't introduced yet yes. that we have to talk about now. Yes, and she's the only she only appears in this particular film. It's the grandmother. And in the in the initial phases of the film, Grandma is a was a pioneer woman who came across <laughs> in a covered wagon. I thought that was so funny. <laughs> I know. And so she's telling Esther, she's the only one in the family who says, Go for your dreams, go to Hollywood, and she gives her money so that she could go and kind of get started. And so Grandma shows up again after all the success to tell her to buck up. She's like, you know what I did when your your grandpa died? I kept digging and I buried him and I built a house. And I hoed potatoes or whatever yeah. it was. She's, she's like, grab your ovaries, girl. Woman up. Yeah. <laughs> and to do it. And so that that brings Esther back to life and back to her career. And I think I thought that was, you know, very interesting. But I, I just really want to go back to it. I'm sorry if I'm repeating this too much. You can cut this out if I am. But I think it's important to decide when you're watching the film, could he have been saved by her love? Was she right? And is, does he know that? Or was she wrong and, and he could not have been saved by her love and it would have been a waste? I pr- prefer to think that she could have saved him and that he chose not to let her make the sacrifice. He chose her life over his. I just can't emphasize that enough because to me, that elevates the film to really an archetypal point of view. Yeah, and that's why in this film I believe that that's true too. And yeah. I think that's different in other versions of the film. Um, it could be, it could be. I think in other versions, which we'll talk about, that that's maybe not the case in some of them. Yeah. Because they bring in the realism too much. Oh, that could be, um, yeah. I just wanted to point out a couple little things about it. And that was there's a scene where the uh, Vicki Lester character wins an Oscar. And so she's at the Oscar party. She's holding an Oscar. Well, the Oscar she's holding was actually her Oscar (laughs) that she got for Wings. So they use that as a prop. And I thought that that was really, really cool. And I also wanted to say that the this film only won one, well, other than the special award for cinematography, only won one Oscar. And that was for Best Writing Original Story. And not for anything else. Okay, so let's move to the last scene. So the last scene, he's dead. Mm-hmm. She's gotten over giving up her career and she comes back. And she walks down a red carpet to a microphone. Is it outside the Grauman's Chinese Theater? I, I think it is. 
but it's, so it's at a gala premiere or a I think it might even have been a tribute to Norman Maine now that he's dead and so she comes in in full technicolor and I remember hearing this line I thought wow and I've never forgotten it do you want to say it they hand her the microphone and they say there's you know millions of listeners all around the world what would you like to say Vicki Lester and she said she leans in and it's very close up on her face in the microphone, and she says, um, hello, everyone, this is Mrs. Norman Maine. No, but she says it like this. She says, <laughs> hello, everyone, this is Mrs. Norman Maine. And I think it's it's the line reading and yeah. the delivery of it. It is powerful. And this shows Janet Gaynor, uh, who is an older-timey actor, so she doesn't have quite the, the, the same kind of toolbox that more modern actors have. But on that one, she nails that. Big time, and I've never forgotten it. And I would have to say, in all of these films, that was num- the number yeah. one best moment of the film. Yeah, better than anyone else. Yeah. Any other closing line in any of the other films. And it feels like th- that they're not afraid. They're not shying away from anything in the film. That they're really going into her experience. But okay, this is where the question came up for me, and and has always kind of concerned me that I was so touched by it, I guess, is that, again, coming from the second wave feminist perspective, I never changed my last name. And the whole thing about taking a man's name and what that meant, and the whole history of uh, women being chattel and so on and so forth. Being referred to by your husband's name was common. You would be Mrs. I don't know, John Price or whatever. Right, exactly. So you didn't have an identity of your own. And that this statement of hers Okay, she's an old-timey woman, and she's, you know, she's she's stating he was important, and I, you know, I I know my place and all that kind of stuff. But that's not how it rings to the heart. No, it's true. I, I think you made a good point when we were talking about this earlier. But it's also kind of a reversal. It's not just that statement at face value. It's a reversal of um, an earlier moment in the film when, because she's a stage actress, so she has her name Vicky Lester. Um, and she's more famous than he is, and somebody comes to the house with a package or something, and they refer to him as Mr. Mr. Vicky Lester. (laughs) Um, And so, you know, in a traditional sense, he's been stripped of his masculine identity and everything. And so at the end, I wouldn't say it's, you know, that that was really true. You know, he wasn't really stripped of his masculinity or anything. And I don't think that she's restoring it to him for the world in I would, say, I would I would disagree. I think that it is because that was how the world was. Mm-hmm. Now, maybe in our eyes, you know, in our eyes today, but in terms of... I would, actually, what I want to say is that it feels like... I, maybe she is restoring his masculinity in the eyes of the world, but also it feels so personal that yes. she's just like, I still like fully identify with my love for this person and I always will. Yeah, and, and in that regard, I am willing to place him above me and really remember that's the scene and that's the the actual point in the film where he ends up tipping over to he's never going to be okay yeah and he breaks sobriety which he that's at that point he was being sober in their marriage for right. a while right yeah. and he he tumbles because of that he doesn't have the strength to yeah to, it's true to 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 accept that uh, and it's how the the viewpoint of what a man is supposed to be collides with what the situation is and neither one is bad, I mean, you know, necessarily, being a house husband or whatever, you know, because he never 
takes the initiative to go, okay, well, this isn't working. Maybe I'll open a furniture store. <laughs> Maybe I'll do, you know, teach acting at the community college. I mean, you know, in other words, for a person of his position, there were other things that were open to him, but it didn't comport with his vision of himself and the ego that he had, you know. So it shows that that part of him uh, conflicts with their love, him being the best person that he could be for their relationship but he does push her ahead of himself with with no selfishness Mm -hmm. and then she's willing to put him above her career and her artistry for her love and then he puts her above him by ending his life so that she is free and she will not sacrifice anything for him and then in the end she puts him above her by saying i am mrs norman Maine." so it's what real love should be that's good. Maybe that's, that's why we analysis. like it. Yeah. Because that's what it should be, is you're always trying to put the other person first. Mm-hmm. Or at least, cu- well, first, you know. not And not in a way. In a mutually. In not, and I'm not talking about it being enmeshed or codependent or any of those negative ways of putting the person first, but with, with true love, with real love in your heart and putting your ego aside, which I think is what she was going to do. Mm-hmm. I don't. I didn't feel like she even did it because, I, as I think back on it, that she did just because she was a woman and that's what women are supposed to do. I, I really felt that that was her choice And she, after she thought about what can I do for him. I agree. I think it's great. And it's a, you know, it's a, a product of its time, so it has the trappings of those structural patriarchal stru- structures. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I think that it really shines through that it's a, such a sincere and personal relationship that right. it makes it a really good movie. And that's why I think it's it has a great complexity to it because it does have the trappings of the patriarchy and you can get caught in those and it can that's kind of life. spoil yeah. and it can spoil it. But, you know, the world over people have these really deep fundamental committed relationships that they play out within those structures, but they're still real. Mm-hmm. And so I think that that's why this film still works. And I really like it a lot, and I really do recommend it. I like it more after having talked so much about it. And then I, I guess that's just, if nothing else, watch. Well, of course, I don't know if you would feel it. You, I think you'd feel it even if you just watched that scene, mm-hmm. that last scene on its own. But it, it really pays off so big. I mean, I just, yeah, I, my heart swells when she says that. Um, I did want to point out just one last little thing about this film, and you'll laugh at me. But in the film, we also see as one of the supporting characters is Gwyn Big Boy Williams, who was a big friend of Errol Flynn. Yeah. <laughs> and he was in a lot of his movies. And we mentioned him in the in the prior podcast, who's in a lot of the movies. And I think he looks just like George uh, D- Bush uh, Jr. <laughs> he looks just like him. <laughs> Who does he play in this one? I don't. I don't even know. He's just in it. He's just in it. I don't. I didn't even. I don't think. I was so enamored with the leads. I didn't even pay attention. <laughs> if you want to get in touch with us, shoot us out an email to foiblespodcast at gmail We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening. Grand